three words that have come to mean quite a bit to me this week. I can see. <laughs> this is great. Um, God, I had LASIK surgery, for those of you who don't know, on Wednesday. And I can see all the way to the back row. So those of you who like to sit back there, hi Hannah, and, and mess around, now I know what you're doing. You're still going to need reading glasses. <laughs> Not yet, buddy. <laughs> we'll hold off on that one. It's amazing to me the difference, though, in, in vision. That you, just, you get used to not being able to see so well. You get used to waking up in the morning and being blind until the glasses go on, and then you kind of see. You get used to no peripheral vision. Those of you who wear glasses, you know what I mean. You can see through the glasses, but out the sides, it's just you get used to kind of a blur out there. And when I opened my eyes in the hotel room the morning after, the first thing I saw was the sprinkler on the ceiling. And I was impressed. <laughs> I was. I mean, you could have put me in an expansive high meadow and I wouldn't have been more thrilled than I was that moment looking up there and actually being able to see the sprinkler. God's Word illuminates us. It opens our eyes to see things that we can't see otherwise, that we have no idea about. Most of us walk through life without God's Word outside of his teaching, outside of the Spirit speaking to us and explaining to us what's in here. And it's like walking around either with dull glasses or no peripheral vision. When we kind of work our way through life unable to see the things that God wants us to see. But isn't it amazing, students of the Bible, how open your eyes become when you read the Word. How incredible it is to see and know and understand that not only do we have a holy God who is completely other and different than us, but we have a God who would stoop to love us the way He does. You couldn't understand it otherwise. Our human understanding of God or of a God or of gods would include the Greek mythology. We would think of God as someone who shows up to toy with us. Oh, He may have created us, but as His playthings. Because that's more like we are. But a God who would create and then love the creation so much that He would become one of them. And then as part of that journey, die for them. Only God's Word could illuminate our vision to understand that He so loved the world. That He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so we study God's Word and we stick to God's Word. And we want to know what it is in God's Word that He wants us to know. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 46. Genesis 46 and verse 1. Four chapters away from the end of this awesome book, this mind-blowing book. It's been a great journey. But there's more to come. And in verse 1 of Genesis 46, we're told that Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock 
and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And they came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, and his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Folks, in these few verses we come to a pivotal point in history. A crucial point that we would do well not to miss what's happening here. God is doing something amazing. If you've ever wondered how the people of Israel, who originally were in the land of Canaan, Abraham was called by God to go there from Ur of the Chaldees, traveled there, lived there. His son Isaac lived there. His son Jacob lived there and his 11 sons, 12 sons, until they sold off one of the sons, Joseph, into Egypt. But they were in Canaan. And you know the book of Exodus is coming. And in the Exodus they come from Egypt back to the promised land. So how did they get to Egypt in the first place? We just read that. They went down to Egypt. And what's amazing to me is God told them to. He told them to. This is important to understand as we're coming up again to Exodus. And we're going to watch the Jewish Exodus out of Egypt. And it's an amazing, amazing story. I want you to consider this morning the entrance, or their entrance, if you will, into Egypt. How they got there, what happened, and what we can learn from it. It's important because as much as God will lead the people back out of Egypt, God led the people into Egypt, into another promised land. You might not think of Goshen in the land of Egypt as a promised land, but it is. It was promised by God just as much as the promise to return back to Canaan. Genesis 15 verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Now with hindsight, we can look back historically and see that prophecy from Genesis 15 in detail played out. 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then the Exodus. But something that's difficult is to understand that God had this planned in the first place. What, the slavery in Egypt? The bondage, the bitterness, the hard labor that the Israelites were put under? Yes. God had it all planned. Now the slavery, granted, was man's idea. That's kind of the way we think of things. But tucking away Israel in the land of Goshen, getting them out of Canaan for a season, for a time, for 400 years, was in the plan. It was God's idea. I never knew that before. Some other things we're going to talk about this morning that I never knew. But you may ask the question, why? Why would God send the children of Israel to Egypt? And it's a great question. And we're going to deal with it. But first, I think we need a little help with this one. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you, as always, to be our teacher and our guide with this great word that is your word, Father. And Jesus, as we read and study, I pray that you will help us to stay within the confines of your word. Not to go out on tangents, not to get lost. Uh, Father, keep me from going in different directions. Keep us focused, Lord, on what you would have us to know and to learn this morning. And be our teacher. For we trust not in ourselves, but in you, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you look back at verse 1 in Genesis 46, it tells us again that Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, if you think back, if you think back for a moment here, God never wanted his people to go to Egypt before. As a matter of fact, he blocked them. He told them, don't go there. Back in Genesis 12, verse 10, it tells us there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. But God didn't tell him to go. And those of you who have studied it recall that it caused all kinds of problems for Abram. He went down with his wife Sarah to Egypt, where he wasn't supposed to go in the first place. And while he was down there, had to lie about his wife to protect himself. And after lying about his wife, oh sure, you may think, well, Abram got off scot-free. He came out of Egypt. He had stuff and treasures and men, men servants and maid servants. And he also had Hagar, a little Egyptian maid servant who would be all kinds of problems in the family of Abraham later on, giving birth to Ishmael. A people, the Ishmaelites, and then later on the people who come from the Ishmaelites being a constant problem for the Israelites, for the Jews, throughout history. God never told Abram to go down. Later on in Genesis 26 verse 2, it tells us the Lord appeared to Isaac, Abraham's son, and said to him, Don't go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now Jacob, Isaac's son, knows this. He knows of the problems that happened when Abram went to Egypt. He knows that his own father was told by God, don't go to Egypt. And now his son Joseph is in Egypt. The carts of Pharaoh have come to pick him up and his family to save them from famine, to take them to Egypt. And what does Jacob do? What does Israel do? On the way, he stops in Beersheba, a place where Isaac had erected an altar before. And there he calls upon the name of God. Folks, I think Jacob was checking in. I think before he set foot in Egypt, Israel was saying, Lord, what do you think? Is this okay? Is this what you want? Do you want me to go down? Should I do this? Now, Rick, are you reading into that? I don't see Jacob saying that. Well, the very next verse, I think, explains it to us. Verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And in verse 3, he said, I'm God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, why would God tell Jacob, don't be afraid to go to Egypt? <laughs> because Jacob was afraid to go to Egypt. And God says, don't worry about it this time. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Go. I will go down with you. One of the promises. And he also promises, and I will bring you back up. So don't stress about it. I'm part of this. This is my deal. Go on down. But why? Why does God now all of a sudden, after all these years, want the people of Israel in Egypt? And the answer is one word. Holiness. It's all about holiness. God is pursuing with His people holiness. What do you mean? Let me give you a couple of quick notes on holiness. Number one, holiness means consecrated. Consecrated. Another word for it is dedicated or set apart for a specific purpose. To be holy. As we sang this morning, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what you want for me. What we're singing is God wants us to be a people set apart. To be different. To be dedicated to Him and to His service. To be consecrated for the purpose of God in this world. 
And that's what holiness means. The word in Hebrew is kadosh. The Greek counterpart, hagios, means the same thing. Consecrated, holy, set apart. Now, the word holiness is used 47 times in the book of Exodus. You get to the book of Leviticus and it's used 91 times. In fact, and you may wonder, well, Rick, you're studying through the Bible. In Genesis I can handle, Exodus, cool, Leviticus? We're going to study through the whole book of Leviticus? You bet your boots we are. Why is that? Because it is the book of holiness. That's the theme of the whole book of Leviticus. It is a powerful, stunning, and stirring book, and you'll see so eventually when we get there. But it's all about holiness. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And from Leviticus on forward, actually Exodus on forward, we're going to see a growing emphasis in Scripture on holiness for the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15. Peter writes, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness means consecrated. Second thing to note about holiness is it's a chief characteristic of God. Holiness is a chief characteristic of God. Psalm 113 verse 5 says, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is enthroned on high? Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Talk about set apart. God himself is the picture of holiness. Absolutely set apart beyond us. And we need to understand that because, folks, if there's one thing the church misses today, if there's one thing the average Christian misses today, it is the absolute stunning and even frightening holiness of the Lord God. He is a holy God. We should, at times, be afraid. Not afraid for our lives, not not fearful of approaching Him. We have the blood of Jesus covering us to approach Him with confidence, but He is still a holy God. Awesome to come before. Eight times in Scripture, God says, Be holy, because I am holy. And I fear we miss this attribute far too often. In an attempt to make God more user-friendly, the church talks about God as the man upstairs, or as the buddy, or the big guy. He is not the big guy. He's God. He's holy. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Leviticus, a uh, commentary called Be Holy, wrote the following. He said, Whenever we minimize the holiness of God, we are in danger, and listen to this, we are in danger of minimizing human sinfulness. When we minimize God's holiness, we minimize human sinfulness, and the combination of these two errors results in the minimizing of the cross of Jesus Christ. If God is not quite as holy as maybe we thought, and if we are not quite as sinful as maybe we thought, maybe we can reach God without the cross. Maybe we can actually be good enough to be in the presence of God. If He's not quite so holy, and so we miss the point, we miss the blood, we miss the cross altogether. Wiersbe goes on and he says, If we want to preach the gospel, we must have a holy God who hates sin and has done something about it at great cost to Himself. And in the scriptures, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message which we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. At all. Not even shadow. 
Not a corner, not a nook or cranny, no darkness at all. John says if we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. God says and would say to you and I this morning, be holy because I am holy. Make anyone else uncomfortable to hear that? (laughs) Be holy? (laughs) Okay. What does that mean? What does it mean to be holy? Does that mean that we hole up and hide out? That we we tuck ourselves away from the world? We we avoid contact with outsiders who aren't Christians? We stay in the barn and and, and fearfully just, you know, do we stockpile weapons? (laughs) Do we pull a Waco, you know? What do we do with this? Jesus eases the tension a bit. He says in John 17:15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. See, he's praying at this moment to God, night before his crucifixion. And he says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now back in Genesis 46 verse 5 it tells us Jacob arose from Beersheba after his encouragement from God God's going to go down with him to Egypt and bring him up. He arose from Beersheba and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him in the next two verses detail again he takes everything. His whole entire world. He doesn't leave a house just in case. He doesn't have a cave where he stashes a lot of stuff. He doesn't go down to the U-Haul place and store away a bunch of stuff just in case he needs it. It all goes. It all goes because God says go. God gives him a peace and a comfort about it. So down to Egypt goes Jacob with all of his family. Now there are three values. If you take notes, you might want to jot down. Three values of holiness that we can see in Israel as God brings them to the land of Goshen. Value number one. These values, by the way, answer the question, why? Why Goshen? And what does holiness have to do with it? Number one, God sets apart His people for preservation against famine. Well, that's the obvious one. They're starving in Canaan. There's no food in the entire world at this point. Absolute starvation is going on. The famine is great. And so He sends His people out, pulls them out, puts them into Goshen to protect them against, or to preserve them against famine. Now I want you to hear something here because sometimes we miss this. God never wants His people to starve. If ever in your life you're feeling hungry, spiritually empty, it's not because God wants you to starve. It's not because God is withholding, standing back saying, we'll see how long you like that. God does not want starvation for His people. He wants preservation against famine. Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 5.6, He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, the Lord God predicted a famine that was greater than that of Joseph's day, greater than any famine the world has seen, And it's a starvation that threatens the landscape of the world we live in today. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 tells us the following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God. When I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. A famine of the word. 
People will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east and they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. But they will not find it, God prophesies, predicts, tells us. They're going to have a starvation for my word. They're not going to see it. They're not going to be able to feed on it. There will be a famine of the word. And this is not a veiled threat, folks. It's not God saying, I'm going to pull out. It's a truth, a prophecy. It's something that God saw not only happening for the people of Israel, but I believe happening in our world today. Wiersbe, in his book, Be Holy, went on to say, With prophetic insight, A.W. Tozer wrote many years ago, Were some watcher or holy one from the bright world above to come among us for a time with the power to diagnose the spiritual sickness of church people, there is one entry which I am quite sure would appear on the vast majority of his reports. Definite evidence of chronic spiritual laziness. Level of moral enthusiasm extremely low. Wiersbe goes on and he says, Whatever else the professing, professing Christian church may be known for today, great crowds, expensive buildings, <laughs> big budgets, political clout, the church is not distinguished for its holiness. I shudder at those words. That's a strong indictment, folks, of us as followers of Jesus. And don't think that, oh, well, we here at the bridge are above the church. No, we're not. We are the church. We are one fellowship of the much larger church. And this indictment affects us. The one thing lacking, is it? Is it true? Could it be that the bridge is lacking in holiness? Wednesday night, a week and a half ago, we talked about the fact that 85% of people who accept Christ will do so by the age of 18. Which is a pretty amazing statistic. It shows you how valuable youth ministry is. 85% of people will make a decision for Jesus before age 18. What we don't often hear is the statistic that follows that. The greatest loss of believers happens in the following 5 to 7 years after age 18. 18 to 25. That is the greatest exodus, if you will, of people who have come to Christ than rejecting Christ. Jesus explained why. Luke chapter 8, verse 13, he says, Those on rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. I worked in youth ministry for 15 years and I watched teenager after teenager after teenager receive the word with great joy. This is cool, Rick. Oh, I like hearing about this stuff. Wow, this is awesome. When are we going to Disneyland? And they received it and they were excited about it. And anyone who's ever been in a camp experience, you know how easy it is to emotionally get charged up about Jesus. But Jesus himself said people will receive the word with joy, but if they have no firm root, they will believe for a while. And in a time of temptation, they're gone. They'll fall away. Luke 8.14, Jesus goes on and says something that I think speaks more to adults. The seed which fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Mark this, folks. The number one reason people fall away, the number one reason is a famine of the word of God. It's not being in the word. Now you may say, well, I'm just not that kind of person. Not a big studier. I'm not a big reader. We're not talking about studying and reading a textbook from college. We're talking about the Holy Word of God that was written to the heart of humanity. A word that does speak to us today. That does capture us. That does grow us. That does build us up. 
Psalm 119.9. Teenagers especially, listen to this. A good verse to memorize. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. You want to know how to walk with Jesus and not be part of that percentage, 18 to 25, who do fall? Keep it according to the word. You be in the word and you will not fall. Luke 8, verse 15, Jesus went on, he said, The seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You might jot this down again, note takers, we are preserved by the word which we have heard. We're preserved by the word which we have heard. Just the study of the scripture, being in the word, hearing God's word, is preserving for the heart of a believer. It gives you strength in the hard times. It builds you up. It leads you when you're in a bad place. Some of you know that my brother and his wife were in a terrible accident several years ago. About 15 years ago now. And Cheryl and I flew up to Oregon to see them. And Lisa was in the hospital and Ron was there. And Ron had an incredible peace at the time. And I wondered, what is it? What's going on here? And I began to notice what the pattern was over the next four or five days. You see, my grandmother had just bought for the whole family that Christmas. This had happened in January, I believe. And that Christmas, my grandmother had bought the one-year Bible for the whole family. We're all going to go through it together. And I already was off, you know, by several weeks. <laughs> but I noticed Ron was reading it and reading it and reading it. He was getting way ahead, in fact. Every spare moment he had in the waiting room, he was reading that one-year Bible. And I began to understand this principle. We are preserved by the word which we have heard. What got him through the terror of that situation was God's Word. It was his strength. And he would later admit that and say, yeah, man, if I didn't have the Bible to read through that. And he would point out certain psalms that God just gave him, that gave him strength to get him through. We are preserved by the Word which we have heard. And Jesus says these words, going back to holiness. John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them, make them holy. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Well, Israel, Israel was preserved from famine. Israel was pulled out of the famine, put into the land of Goshen by God's designed will because He wanted to preserve them against famine. Number two, God sets apart His people, Israel. God sets apart His people for protection against sin. For protection against sin. This is possibly the single greatest reason why God pulled Israel out of the promised land. It wasn't the famine. Did you know that? The famine was part of the reason, but the big part, the greatest part of the reason, was He needed to get them out of Canaan. The sin was intense. And Israel's family had already been pretty badly marred by the sin of Canaan. By the stuff going on all around them from the Hittites and the Amorites and the Minnitites and all these people. Did you catch that? Okay, good. Okay. Genesis 15:16. God is speaking to Abraham. And this is back past. And he said, In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What does that mean? It means that the sin of the Amorites had not reached full tilt. It means that God knew there was going to be a season of time where the Amorites and the Canaanites, all of the people in the land of Canaan, would have opportunity to turn to God but would reject opportunity to turn to God and would become heinously evil. And they did. And the things that went on in Canaan during the 400 years that Israel was safely tucked away in bondage, yes, but still safely tucked away in their own place in Goshen, all that was going on in Canaan was awful. 
so bad that when Israel came back into Canaan, God said, and now you will be my instrument to wipe out the people on the face of this land because they have gotten so horridly sinful. God sets his people apart for protection against sin. They needed to be set apart. You know the story, some of you, of Ur and Onan. Judah's two sons, who were so evil that God just killed them. Just took them out. Put them out of their misery like rabid dogs. It was bad, folks. But God needed to protect his people against sin. By the way, by the way, that's what the church is here for. And don't miss this. That's why the church is here. For protection against sin. The church is the place where holiness happens. And you may say, well, Rick, you haven't been to my church then. You haven't seen the things that I've seen in the church. I don't care. I know that the church has not had the greatest reputation in the world. But folks, where else are you going to find holiness? Where else are you going to seek God? Where else are you going to find other people who are, like you, a sinner, yet saved Redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The church is the place where holiness happens. It's the only place to find it. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, Paul said, You are fellow citizens with the saints, or holy ones, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The church is the place where holiness happens. Now I'm talking about the Spirit-filled, Word-fed church as God sees and knows it. You know, the church in Acts 2.47 that tells us God is adding to them daily those who are being saved. There is a church gang that is both bigger and smaller than we are. Bigger than us in that any professing Christian is a member of God's church. Smaller in, in that, as much as I hate to say it, there may be, there are in any given church people who are not saved. One of the reasons why I get so heavy handed sometimes about Bible study and about God's word is I don't want a single person to miss it. I don't want anybody not to be saved on my watch. I don't want a single person to walk out of the bridge saying, I'm just not sure what it takes to be saved. I guess I'll figure it out someday. I want to be clear about it. Jude said in verses 20 and 21 of his letter, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Build yourselves up. How? In your holy faith. Stick together. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Seek holiness. Be holy, God said, because I am holy. God sets His people apart for protection against sin. You know, something that troubles me is that we don't realize this purpose of the church. I've heard three times in the last two weeks, I kid you not, this exact phrase from three different people telling me about some struggle going on in their lives, some pain, some sin. This phrase, I'm telling you this, Rick, but keep it quiet, I wouldn't want the church to know. That breaks my heart. Shouldn't the church be the place where you can say... I'm struggling with this particular sin. Will you pray for me? My life is in the heap right now. Will somebody help me? 
Isn't this the place where we are called to holiness knowing that the only reason we're holy is because God has saved and redeemed us? None of us can claim holiness on our own. None of us can claim that kind of righteousness. So why are we afraid to look each other in the eye and say, I'm a sinner. I have blown it this week. Will you help me be stronger next week? (laughs) I wouldn't want the church to know, Oh no, someone might find out that I'm actually a sinner. Guess what? We already know. (laughs) The word is out. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but praise God that He loved us so much to die for us and redeem us. Number three on your list. Number three, God sets apart His people for purification as a priesthood. Purification as a priesthood, and I think this one is really cool. You may or may not know that all of Israel was originally called as a priesthood. All of them. The entire group were called to be priests, holy to God. But they blew it. They blew it at Sinai in that horrifying moment that we'll read about in a few weeks. In that moment when they came to Sinai and constructed the golden calf and began worshiping the created thing of man as opposed to the Creator. At that point, the Levites stood up. They stood up with Moses and said, We will not stand for this. We will stand with you and with God. And God makes the Levites the priests of Israel, not the whole people of Israel, because they lost that opportunity. But it originally was supposed to be all of Israel. Eventually, the Levites lost that role as well, handing Messiah, Jesus, over to be crucified. But 1 Peter 2 verse 9 tells us something amazing. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you get that? We had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. We were once impure, but now we are pure. Once unholy, but now in Jesus, in Christ. You are holy and called as a royal priesthood. I just think that's really cool. 1 Peter 2 verse 10, listen again. You were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We don't evolve into greater spiritual beings. We become holy because of God. We have received mercy unto holiness, and that is something worth singing about. And so we sing, and so we worship, and so we praise, and so we will sing. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It's one of those moments, and some of you have heard me mention this before. Did you know, Christians, believers in Christ, did you know that you are quoted in the Bible? That there is more than one place where words that you will speak, future tense, words that you will sing, are quoted in Scripture ahead of time. You can look down and read the words and say, Oh, I said that? Cool. Even though you haven't said it yet, you will. Revelation 5.9 says, They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we will reign on the earth. John is seeing and, and, and is foreseeing something amazing, hearing something that will happen. And I ask you a question, when you listen to those words, this new song, listen to the words in the new song again. 
Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed unto us, or redeemed us to God by the blood. You've redeemed us. Who can say that they have been redeemed? The church. Who but the church can claim redemption? Therefore, who but the church is singing the song of the redeemed? Gang, the song of the redeemed is our song. It's the song of the church. It's also the song of those who will become kings and priests and will reign on the earth with Jesus. Only the redeemed can sing that song. And my friends, it's you. It's you. It's you. God sets apart His people for purification as a priesthood. I have one more thing to tell you and we're done this morning. But possibly of all the things that we've talked about, this is the most important. God does call the church to holiness. He set apart His people Israel for the purpose of holiness. To protect them, preserve them against famine. Protect them against sin, yes. But also to prepare them as priests. Holy priests. But if you listen to a message like this, like most of us, you may be prone to wander out of here going, my life is so far from that, I can't even accept it. The distance between where I am in my life and my heart today and where God's holiness is and even the holiness of the church is supposed to be is so great, how could I possibly even think that this applies to me? How in the world can I get there? Well, listen up. God still has a plan for bringing His people Israel back to the promised land. But I'm not speaking to Israelites this morning. I'm speaking to believers in Christ. And the word is clear that God wants you and I to be set apart as a royal priesthood. But if we wonder how we get there, how in my unpriestly state can I become this royal priesthood or part of it? Look again at Genesis chapter 46 verse 1. Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices. Before Israel and his family could be set apart, he offered sacrifice. Before anybody can become holy, sacrifice is the key. The book of Leviticus chapter 1, the first chapter of the book on holiness is all about sacrificing to God. It begins with sacrifice. It starts at the altar. Jacob didn't start off his, his journey with a big festival or a big feast or a party. He began at the altar. The book of holiness, Leviticus, does the same thing. Starting at the altar. And so it is with you and I. We begin at the altar. But look up, my friends, because you are not the one on the altar. You are not the sacrifice. Jesus is. Jesus is. Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. Man, I rely on that sacrifice. I could not dare to stand up and talk to you about the things that we talk about, even to open the pages of Scripture, if I hadn't gone to the sacrifice of Jesus first. And that's where it begins for all of us. And I'll tell you something, those of you who do believe in Jesus, if you feel set apart from God in a negative way, 
If you feel distanced from Him, then go back to the altar. Go back to the cross of sacrifice. Recognize again how much He loves you. And that He has called you to be set apart. To be holy.